Genesis 35, I'm going to read to you the first 15 verses. That's where we're going to concentrate in this chapter, at least today. Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah... Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alan Becheth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, and your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So I want to look specifically at what God commanded Jacob. And in looking at what God commanded Jacob, I want us to see how God is commanding us. So I want to go back to verse 1, and I want you to see, I want you to notice four words. So God said, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there. Bethel, Beth-el, Beth in Hebrew means house of, El is the Hebrew word for God. House of God is what Bethel means. So I'm going to look at these four words in the command that God gives to Jacob. Arise. God commanded Jacob to arise. God commanded Jacob to go. God commanded Jacob to stand to, um, I'm sorry, to dwell. And God commanded Jacob to make an altar, to arise, to go, dwell, 
And this word alter, not A-L-T-E-R, like altered consciousness, but alter, A-L-T-A-R, a place of sacrifice and a place of worship. So as we look at these four words, I want us to see what these words imply and how they command us. So let's look at this first word, arise. God called Jacob to arise. Now this is more than just get up or stand up from your place of reclining or laying down. God called Jacob to arise. God calls us to arise. I want you to hear what the Lord is commanding Jacob here. We are called like Jacob to arise, to ascend. It's much more than ascending or being raised up physically or geographically. This is a call to arise and to be raised up in every sense of the word. Jacob was called to arise. This is a Hebrew word that literally means to rise up, to set up, to be roused up, to stand up, to stir up, to strengthen, to succeed, to make sure, to be upholding physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Jacob was and we are called to arise in every sense of the word. But that arising is to come from a posture of humility. So on one hand, we're commanded to arise. On the other hand, we see throughout the scripture that we're commanded to humility, to be humble. So in this arising, it's to come from a posture of humility and a recognition that we can only arise in God and by his grace. So Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due season. So when we use this word, when we talk about the word arise, and we talk about humility at the same time, it may sound somewhat contradictory that God, God wants us to arise, to ascend, but he also wants us to be humble. But I want to assure you that to arise and to be humble are not only consistent with one another, they are necessary partners that God commands that in no way contradict one another. In fact, when we read what Peter writes and when we read what James writes, the only way that we can truly arise is to humble ourselves before God, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in humbling ourselves, what is the promise? That God will lift us up. God will raise us up. God will cause us, in other words, to arise. So this word arise, we are called to arise in every sense of the word, and we do it by grace, and we do it in the humility before God. Go. God tells Jacob, arise and go. Go where? Go up. You never go down to the house of God. You always go up to the house of God. Just like you never go down to Jerusalem. I don't care where you are. You go up to Jerusalem. Because this is not about physical elevation. This is not about uh, geography. This is about a place, a position. This is 
from a spiritual perspective. And God is speaking to Jacob, not only in the natural. He's, Jacob's really going to get up. He's really going to go to a place that we could point to on a map today. We could go there and walk in a place called Bethel and see a real place on earth, real geography. But God is talking to Jacob. And God is talking to us about much more than geography, much more than a point on a map. Bethel is the place that we are commanded to go up to. The house of God calls us to obedience. We are to arise and go up. This is not just a place we go, but a direction in life, a destination in life. This is a call to arise, a call to go up and to become something and someone other than. We see this because God reminds Jacob again, your name is Jacob, but you are not Jacob any longer. You are Israel. And what God is saying, Jacob, arise and go up because I'm calling you to be someone other than who you were. God calls us in Christ to be someone other than. Christ is the one who is other than anything and anyone else. We need to do another Not I But Christ Bible study so we talk in depth about the otherness of Christ. Christ is other than anyone and anything. And God calls us to be other than who we were. God calls you to be other than who you may know yourself to be today. The world may define you one way. The world may give you a name. Your mama, your daddy can give you names, but I'm telling you what, God wants to give you a new name. You might not literally get a new name, but what I want you to understand is that when you're born again, what God calls you to is to be born again. And when you become born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you become other than who you were and what you were. This is the call to go up. God commands Jacob to go up and to know that he is someone other than he has known himself to be. Christ is other than anything or anyone. And when we are born again, we trust in Christ from a new heart of faith. And when we do that, we arise and we are raised up and we become other than that which we were. This is why the Bible says we become new creation. So the call to arise and go up is a constant call. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. We were all born a natural birth. And like our natural birth, our spiritual birth only occurs once. You're not born again, and then you fall into sin, and you lose your salvation, and then you got to get born again, again, any more than you're born from your mother's womb and you ruin your life, and you say, well, let me try that again. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) I know we wish that it did work that way sometimes, but it doesn't work that way. We've witnessed here today people going through the most traumatic things you can possibly go through. We, We are witnessing people looking at the prospect of loved ones dying or loved ones having already departed or sickness ravaging a body. 
We, we are brought before, it's been brought to us today, our mortality, that life, this life, this physical life is a fleeting life. As long as you might live on this earth, if you live to be the oldest man or the oldest woman, do you realize how short your life is compared to the eternal life that God gives to you in Jesus Christ? That when we make the transition from this earth, from this body, from this flesh, into the glorious body, into the realm of glory that, that we will live in eternally through faith in Jesus Christ, we realize how fleeting our lives are. They're just exactly what the Bible says. They're vapors. They're moments that just pass before our eyes. And if we don't understand what God is commanding us when he commands us to arise, when he commands us to go up, to heed this call, that, that this call is not a one-time call, it's a constant call. That when we're born again of the Spirit, from that birth, from our birth, both natural and spiritual, our life is to be a constant journey and a constant process of maturity and growth and fruitfulness. That's what God, God wants to bring us to fruitfulness. So this isn't a one-time call. This is a constant call to arise and to go up. This is, this is true physically, it's true emotionally, and when we look at our children and when we look at people around us, there is an expectation that we have that physically and emotionally there should be maturity taking place. And when we see adults that aren't acting mature, we're like, damn, why are they acting so immature? Why are they... We think something's not right. Something's wrong with them. You, you should act better than that. You should know better than that. When, when we have physical problems and we're restricted, we, we know there's a problem. We say, you know, physically something's wrong. I think maybe my leg is broken. Uh, physically, I've got some dysfunction going on here. So when we experience physical or emotional dysfunction, we recognize and we say, yeah, we need to, we need to fix that. We need to get that straightened out. But yet it is so easy in our culture today, and I believe even in too much of the church, to just disregard spiritual immaturity and spiritual dysfunction. And God wants us physically and emotionally and spiritually to experience growth and maturity and fruitfulness. And when we ignore that or we diminish the value of our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity, we do so to the detriment of every area of our life. You know what our nation, our nation doesn't need smarter people. Our nation, our nation doesn't even need more emotionally secure people. What our nation needs is a people who are spiritual. We need a people who love God and who submit themselves physically and emotionally and spiritually to God, who look to God in every way, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, who know that our only hope is a God who is spirit. And he demands that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
You can't get that at the gym. You can't get that from a healthy diet. You can't get that by reading all the books on psychology and psychosis and experience emotional healing. That's, you can't get that from that. Something spiritually has to happen. God has to do a miracle in your heart. God has to do a miracle in my heart. And if God doesn't do a miracle in our hearts, we're in trouble. As, as healthy as we may be, as emotionally adjusted as we may be, we can die the most healthy and emotionally adjusted people and still split hell wide open. That's not a good thing. God didn't make us two parts. He made us three parts. He made us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Or as the Bible talks about it, spirit, soul, and body. We have lots of effort going into the soul and the body. But our real problem is not at the body level or even at the soulish level. Our real problem is at the spiritual level. And we need to cry out to God that he would spiritually touch us, transform us, so that we could then begin the process of renewing our mind and saving our soul. The soul, the Greek word soul is the Greek word suke. It means the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. Do your, does your mind and your will and your emotions need to be healed, need to be renewed? Absolutely, they do. But you can renew that to men like Sigmund Freud or the latest, greatest uh, psychiatrist in the world today and counselors in the world today. But if, if, your soul, if your spirit's not touched, if something doesn't happen on the inside, there's no hope for us. So the call to arise and to go up is first a spiritual call to life in Christ. It's a call to maturity and faithfulness in every realm of our life, in every realm of our being. As we answer that call, we are given we are giving witness to God and to his goodness and to his glory. As you answer that call, you give witness to the goodness of God and the glory of God and the love of God. This is what the world needs to see. How is the world going to see Jesus? Say, well, he's going to come back one day. Hmm? Now, that's not how we want the world to see Jesus. We want the world to see Jesus through us. They will see him come back one day. But, but if they only see him then, it's going to be too late for them. And in one sense, God has commanded us to do something that only he can do. But he can only do what he can only do with us. In other words, you're going to be Jesus to somebody. You're going to show someone the love of Jesus. How am I going to do that, Pastor Jeff? You're going to love one another. That's what Jesus said. They'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. So you're going to be Jesus to somebody. You're going to witness through your life, through your words, through everything. You're going to witness Christ to them, and they're going to see Jesus. And God is going to use you to draw them by his spirit, as you give witness. So God tells Jacob, he commands Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel. And he says, dwell there. Bethel, the house of God. Bethel is our dwelling place with God. Jacob was called to arise, to go up to Bethel and dwell there. 
He didn't say visit there. He said dwell there. This is important for us, church. And like Jacob, we're called to dwell in the place of God's presence. This is where we are planted and rooted in the house of God. This is our dwelling place. And that dwelling place is Christ. Ultimately, Christ is the house. Go to Revelation chapter 21. He is the temple. Somebody asked me the other night, is there, is there going to be a temple and the new heaven and the new earth? And I said, read your Bible. Your Bible tells you very plainly, there will not be a temple in the new heaven and the new earth. It's not an accident, and it's not the Muslims' fault that the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet. God has done this. God tore it down. God is not allowed it to be rebuilt, and God reveals to us in Revelation 21 that the Lamb is the temple. I saw no temple there, John says. Why? Because the Lamb is the temple. What does that mean? Peter says, you, hey church, you are living lively stones being what? Being built up into a holy habitation. You, church, are the house of God. Guess what? Christ dwells in you and he is your hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.26. This is what the world, this is what the rulers of the world didn't know, but had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We can get rid of one Jesus and be done with it. But what they didn't know is when you crucify that one Jesus, you've just activated the plan and purpose of God that existed before creation. And now Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, will come and dwell, not in a temple in Jerusalem, but he will come and dwell in living stones all over the face of the earth. And he's not just building a temple. Go back to the book of Revelation. He's building a city. I saw the new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven, who is the bride of the Lamb. Who is the bride of the Lamb? You are the bride of the Lamb. I am the bride of the Lamb. The church is the bride of the Lamb. God is telling Jacob, arise, go up, dwell. Go to Bethel and dwell there. Dwell In my presence, this is a picture of what was ultimately to come in Christ. It's a picture of where we dwell today. We don't live in Israel. We don't live in Bethel. We live in the real Bethel. We are Bethel. We are the house of God. We are the dwelling place of God. God dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. I wish you could get a revelation of that. And let God transform your heart and your mind to understand who you are in Jesus Christ and what God has done by his grace in spite of ourselves. So this isn't describing a length of stay or a, but a state of being. God was not just calling Jacob to stay a long time and make a, a permanent address there in Bethel. He was calling and commanding Jacob to dwell in the house of God, to desire that, to seek that, to look to that. And that reveals something about our heart. When we desire that, when we look to that, when we seek after that, it desires something about our heart. 
and it desires something about our obedience. We're not only called to a place, but to a life. More than that, we're called to a person who is our dwelling place. And that life and that person who is our dwelling place is Jesus Christ. We dwell in him personally. We dwell in him corporately. And we dwell, or he dwells in us completely. You have not received part of Jesus. You have received all of Jesus. You didn't receive part of his spirit. You received the fullness of his spirit. You're not a partial house. You are the house. You are being built up into a holy habitation. Because this is what God has done. And by grace through faith, we are dwelling in him now. And he is dwelling in you. So we're to know and the world is to see that Christ is our dwelling place. And that he dwells in us as we dwell in him. That we will know or that the world will know that we are his disciples. How? By the love that we have for one another. And we cannot have that love if his love is not first in us. So Jesus says, it's recorded in John 13, 35, love one another even even as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. John 13, 35. And in 1 John 4, 19, John writes, we love him because he first loved us. Listen, God has got to put his love in you. But once God puts his love in you, then you are able to love the same way Jesus has loved us. And we are commanded to do that. We are commanded to live, to dwell, to abide in his presence. That means we live and we abide in him. That means we live and we abide in his love. And then he tells Jacob, he says, make an altar there where in Bethel in the place that you're going to dwell. What is an altar? It's a place of worship. It's a place of sacrifice. So what is God telling Jacob? He's telling him to worship, worship me. He's commanding worship. Do you know that God doesn't suggest worship? He doesn't advise worship. God commands worship in every sense of the word. God commands worship. Worship is not something that we get to pick or choose. Worship is what God commands. And every one of us, every human being on the face of the earth is worshiping something. It's not a question of whether you are worshiping. The the question is what, or more specifically, who are you worshiping? The hardest, coldest atheist worships, trust me. He doesn't know it. He doesn't describe it that way, but he absolutely worships. The problem is not that he doesn't worship. The problem is he does not worship the true and the living God. God commands worship. Bethel requires an altar. In other words, the place that we dwell requires worship. We cannot dwell in the presence of God, and there not be worship. There cannot be God and no worship. Where God is, there is worship. Worship goes with God, I mean, like wet goes with water. You can't separate God from worship. 
And when God commanded Jacob to arise, to go up to Bethel and to dwell there, when he said make an altar, we need to understand that worship was never in question. Worship is never in question when it comes to God. The command to make an altar is a command to worship. God commanded Jacob to worship him. God commands us, his children, to worship him. God commands all men to worship him. And what men ultimately do with that command to worship will have an eternal consequence on every living soul. God commanded Jacob to build an altar at Bethel, and so God commanded Jacob to worship at Bethel. Remember, Bethel is this place. It's a real place. We could locate it on a map. We could walk there. We could go and tour there and say, oh, this is Bethel. This is where Jacob built an altar. But I want you to understand Bethel is much more than a place on a map. It's a, it's a place of worship. It's a place that demands, that requires our worship. And worship requires obedience. Worship is an action. And worship implies what we do and how we do it. Worship in that sense is physical. So we 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 worship today in every sense of the word. You stood up, you sat down, you, you opened your mouth, you sang songs. Maybe you raised your hands. Our worship is physical. When God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle and set up a system of worship, if, if we could just really understand how physical that was, but more than the physicality of it was the spiritual. The spiritual was more real than the physical. We don't understand how bloody that tabernacle and that temple was. That for up until Jesus came for 1,500 years, they killed multiple animals every day. That's a lot of blood. It was, it was a bloody mess. It was very physical. Worship is physical. It's an action. But worship is more than an action. It's an attitude. Worship not only implies what and how. Worship implies why we do what we do. It is of the heart. It is of the mind. It's of our soul. Worship has to come from our heart. Worship is not separated from our mind, from our soul, from our our will and our emotions. It's an action. It's an attitude. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is how we live and how we move and how we have our being in him. This is what Paul writes. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. This is what he said to the philosophers on Mars Hill. In him we live and move and have our being. Worship is from our spirit. It's from our soul. It's from our body. It's our action. It's our attitude. It's our very heart. It's our lifestyle. This is what God commands. God commands worship. And we see that worship is sacrificial. When God set up the system of worship for the children of Israel, something had to die. There was not real worship if something didn't die. Are you hearing me, church? 
The children of Israel didn't get to pick or choose whether they sacrificed their lamb or not. Well, you know, I just don't feel like killing my lamb today. I think I'm going to take it back home with me. But it's all good. I went to the temple and I worshiped God. No, you didn't. You rebelled. You disobeyed. Because worship requires something to die. Are you hearing me? Go build an altar, Jacob. Jacob understood what was going to happen on that altar. When he built that altar, he understood that an animal was going to die on that altar. Worship, your worship today, our worship today. I hope something died in your worship today. I hope something was cut off in your worship today. What would that be, Pastor Jeff? Well, I don't have time to go into it today because it's already 12 o'clock. So we're going to have to go into it in depth next week. But I want to draw your attention back to our text in Genesis and I'll give you a little preview. And we'll have part two next week. So God says, let's just read the first few verses here. Then God says to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar there to God. God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now I want you to look at verse two. And Jacob said, so God commands Jacob. And what does Jacob do? Then Jacob commands his household. And Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away your foreign gods, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Arise, go, dwell, and worship. These are all actions that require our obedience, but not apart from God's grace. To arise, to go up, to dwell, and to worship are things that require our obedience, but that obedience does not come without God's grace, and God's grace is what enables us to be obedient. Do you understand that, church? You're not obedient apart from God's grace. You don't obey and get God's grace. You are able to obey because God has given you his grace. Apart from his grace, you would be nothing but a rebel, an unbeliever, railing against God and worshiping yourself or something else at the very best. It is the grace of God given to us that enables us to walk in obedience. God commands Jacob, but God gives Jacob the grace to arise, to go up, to dwell in Bethel, and to build an altar there. Jacob was not left to himself. Jacob was with him. God was with Jacob. We're not left to ourselves to do these things or anything by ourselves. But God is with us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is with you. Now let's go back to the statement I made a while ago that when you came here and you worshiped today, I hope something died. I hope something was put away. I hope something, what, thing. Well, look what Jacob, look at what Jacob commands his household in verse 2. Put away your foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourself and change your clothes. Let's just start with the first one. Put away the foreign gods. What is that? That's idolatry. Now, I bet you none of you came having a little household god in your pocket this morning. I hope not. If you did, you can throw it off, find a trash can for you. You can throw it away before you leave today, okay? But it was a real common thing back in the, in the, in the Eastern culture, in Jacob's culture. 
people had household gods. They had little idols they'd set up in their house, and they'd make little altars in their house. And these were like their family gods, you know, and every, every family had different gods. And they would go and they'd pray to those and worship those little gods and hope that the, their little household gods would bring them good luck and prosperity and success. This is what Rachel stole, by the way, when she left her father's house and hid under her saddle, the household gods. And those household gods were here and those are the ones that Jacob says to all, everybody in his household, to all his servants, put away your idols. So what is your idol? When we come together in worship, one of the things that needs to be laid upon the altar, one of the things that needs to be killed in our life are the things that are idolatrous to us, the things that defile us. The old that still clings to us, we need to cast that off. It needs to die. It needs to be put away. It needs to be cast off. What is Jacob telling his household? He's saying, guys, we're getting ready to go up to Bethel, and we're getting ready to worship God. We're going to dwell in the presence. This is where God appeared to me. We're going to the house of God. We're going to where the very God of my fathers appeared to me, and we're going to worship him there. So now is the time for you to get rid of your idols. Now is the time for you to, to, to cleanse yourself, purify yourself, come out of your defilement. Now is the time to take the old off and put the new on because we are going up to the house of God to worship. When you come here, this is, I know we don't do it, but it really should be our mindset. I'm getting ready to go worship God. Not that I haven't been worshiping God, not that I don't worship God all the time, but I mean the people of God are coming together. We're getting ready to worship. I need to cast away my idols. I need to come out of the things that are defiling me. I need to take the old off and put the new on. How do I do that? You do that by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. So we're going to stop right here, and we're going to continue this next week because we have a meal next door. But I want you to, Understand this, you don't do that in your own strength and in your own power. You can't purify yourself. Please understand this. And apart from the grace of God, you'll never cast away your idols. And you can't put on anything new because you don't have anything new to put on until God in his grace gives you the new and makes you new. Now, once he's done that, you can absolutely put the old off and put the new on. But if you don't have any new clothes to put on, if I came to you and I said, hey, come on, get ready, put, put your new clothes on, take those dirty old clothes off, got dirt and grease all over them, you got to put some new clean clothes on. And you say, I, these are the only clothes I have. Well, you can't put on what you don't have, do you? So a lot of people think, a lot of people go through life trying to put on something they don't have because they're trying to do it in themselves. No, God's got to give you that first. He's got to give you the new before you can put it on. And that's how you receive it is by the grace of God. So we're going to stop there. And we're going to continue this next week. And we'll finish this next week. So God commands that we arise, that we go up, that we dwell in his presence, and that we worship. And we do that by his grace. I want to challenge you today to look to his grace.
cry out for his grace. To ask that God would heal your blindness and reveal to you the need for his grace. And that you would cry out and know that God will hear your cry. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, he will save you. Those who call upon his name, Paul writes in Romans, will not be put to shame. So can we stand and can we pray? I'm going to pray a closing prayer, and I'm also going to ask God to bless our food next door. And then you guys go next door, and they've got awesome food and large quantities of it. And so I hope you can all stay and we can fellowship together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, you command us to do what we cannot do on our own. Lord, we cannot arise, we cannot go up, we cannot dwell, we cannot worship apart from your grace. And neither could Jacob. God, just as you gave grace to Jacob, you give grace to us. And I pray, Father God, if there is even one here today who does not know your grace. Lord, if something is pricking their heart, if something is is challenging them and they're feeling a tug in their heart, God, I pray that they would know this is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is drawing them to Christ and that they would, from a heart of faith, call upon the name of the Lord and know that when they call upon your name, God, you will save them. And then you will give them grace, God, to arise, grace to go up, grace to dwell in your presence, grace to worship you, grace, God, to cast away their idols, grace to to be purified by the blood of Jesus, and grace to put off the old and put on the new. And so live in your presence and be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Lord, this is only possible by your grace. You command it. We ask that you would give us the grace to obey. Father, I pray for all who are here. Lord, especially those that have experienced loss and devastation, whether it's of their homes and their physical possessions, whether it's the loss of loved ones, of life, God, we look to you, we trust in you, we confess we don't understand how you work and why you do the things you do, but we absolutely believe, God, and we ask that you would even help our unbelief. We absolutely believe, God, that you are the sovereign, that you have a good plan and a good purpose in all things, and you work those things together for good, and we put our hope, and we put our trust in that promise. And we say, be glorified, God, in our lives. Be glorified on the mountaintop and be glorified in the valley of shadow. But be glorified in all things. And help us in your grace find your joy. And so rejoice always in you. And again, Lord, we would give thanks and praise and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.